You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part 9 of a series in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 16. I repeat, let no one make think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we are too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman, with far greater labours, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. We'll pause our reading there at the end of chapter 11. Paul is continuing in the same vein that we saw in the last chapter. He's defending his apostolic ministry by contrast with the false so-called super apostles who were uh, seeking to gain influence and uh, and to lead the church in Corinth uh, after themselves. Paul has said at the beginning of chapter 11 that his task has been to betroth the Christians to Christ as their husband. And uh, he's used this idea of boasting. He he said at the end of chapter 10 that if we boast, we must boast in the Lord. But he did say in chapter 10 that he would boast about his authority to build up the church in Corinth, not to tear it down. And now he, he ranks up the rhetoric, if you like. He's really trying to be persuasive. I'm sure you saw that as you listened to this passage. He says, you know, I'm let no one think me foolish, but if you do, well, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. Uh, and he goes on to talk about some of the things that he could boast about. He's not saying that he is boasting about them. But he, he, he says this is not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Please understand, this is not how a true apostle speaks. This is how a fool speaks. So let me show you, let me demonstrate. If other people are going to boast according to the flesh according to physical things, in other words, according to uh, the outward appearance and according to uh, the things that this world can see and measure, then he will boast too. 
After all, they put up with fools because they think they're wise, verse 19. They tolerate it when people enslave them and devour them and take advantage of them and are boastful or strike them in the face. Uh, of course, Paul is being ironic here. He He's saying, you know, you, you allow yourselves to be led astray. He's not making fun of them for turning the other cheek, if you like. But he's saying that basically these false teachers who seem so impressive to some of the Corinthians are actually harming them and they need to see it. And so Paul goes on and he says, look, you know, I'm a Hebrew. I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. All of these things that in Philippians 3, Paul describes that where his source of pride before he came to know Jesus, uh, some of those false apostles, presumably too, had, had some of those um, privilege of, uh, of being Jewish, of being descended from Abraham. Well, Paul has all of that. And look at his service for Jesus. I mean, who else could boast of suffering the way he did? Although it's interesting, there's a kind of a twist there. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? Verse 23, I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. And you would expect then that he's going to go on and talk about how many churches he started and how many times he has preached and how many people he has seen converted uh, and, and how many he has discipled and, and sent out into full-time ministry. Those are the kind of things that churches today boast about, aren't they? That's what we expect to see in the mission reports and ministry reports. That's how we tend to think of success. But then Paul twists it and he, the things he goes on about are his sufferings, the opposition that he faced, the hard times. So he says, verse 30, if I must boast, I'll boast about the things that show my weakness. So you see how he twists this. He, he builds up their expectation that Paul's defence of his ministry is going to be talking about all the things that he has achieved. But no, what he says is that he is weak. Uh, and and therefore the strength is not in him. Even this episode, which I think is meant to be comical in Damascus, of being let through through a window in a basket. I mean, come on, running away. You see, this is the opposite of how those false apostles spoke about themselves. They loved to go on about their ex experiences and their successes and their achievements perhaps embellishing them, perhaps distorting them, perhaps even making them up. But even the things uh, that were true, they just love to, to point to those and, and say, look at us, look how, how impressive we are. And it's really quite sad that in our evangelical culture today, when it comes to biographies, when you read those at a conference of speakers and so on, it tends to all be about our achievements, doesn't it? I don't know how we got to that point. Um, I suppose it's understandable that if you're going to pay to go to a conference, you want to know that the speaker has something useful to say and has some experience to back that up. But but it really oughtn't to be that the things that we trade on are, are what people would count as our successes. The books we've written, places we've preached, the, uh, the growth of the church. There ought to be space for honesty about weakness. So let's read on into 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. 
whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things which cannot be told, which men may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's uh, finishing at the at verse 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So Paul continues, he's, he's talked about all these uh, unimpressive things in his ministry, his suffering for Christ. Although I suppose some people might think, well, that's pretty impressive, you know, if, if that's how they rank success. But he says, I'm going to go on to another area. What about visions and revelations? I know a man. And he's deliberately putting that in the third person, although it's very clear that it's himself he's talking about. He says, verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these great revelations. But he puts it in the third person because what he's doing here is saying, of course, I'm not going to boast about that. Quite possibly he's he's replicating the way the false apostles would have talked because they probably put on a show of humility. Oh, I, I don't like to go on about myself, but... And of course, they would let slip the things that, you know, their ecstatic experiences of Jesus and the great things they had done for him. And so Paul gives us an insight. He says that 14 years ago he had this experience and he doesn't know the detail of it. He doesn't know whether it was physical or not. An intimacy in the third heaven, a, a joy in paradise. Uh, things that he couldn't repeat um, he couldn't speak. But Paul says, I, I could boast on behalf of that man, but, but not my own. I, I'll not boast of anything except my weaknesses. And you think, oh yeah, Paul, you've just done what the, the false apostles do. You've, you've let us know how great you are and you're dressing it up as if you're weak. That's the kind of manipulative speech, of course, that um, narcissistic people use to try and and get you on their side, you know, oh, he's a humble guy. We couldn't, you know, I know he goes on a bit, but I mean, he, you know, he's, he's really a humble guy or he has suffered and, you know, we couldn't possibly question him. That's not what Paul is doing here, though, because because notice what he says. He, he's then very open. Not He doesn't just say, well, I'll only boast in my weaknesses. I'm not going to go on about that thing. No, actually, he does go on to talk about his weakness. He says that a thorn was given him in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass him, to keep him from being conceited. That's a really interesting way that this is put in verse 7. Uh, the thorn in the flesh, and we don't know what it is. Uh, lots of suggestions have, have been made. 
Um, one of the most common ones is the suggestion that Paul's uh, thorn was a, a problem with his eyesight because elsewhere he talks about writing with large letters. So maybe his, his, his weakness was his eyesight that made him depend on others. Some have tried to relate it back to what Paul has said in the previous few chapters about not being an impressive speaker. Maybe he had a speech impediment um, of some nature. Uh, others have said it's maybe an area of sexual temptation or uh, temptation more generally. Um, uh, whatever it is, actually, I think the Lord in his wisdom has deliberately left that vague. Paul, just to use that phrase, a thorn in the flesh, which I think is a is a fairly uh, good picture, isn't it, of, of something that is a, a perpetual um, struggle for us, something that is there embedded in the flesh that, you know, when you put weight on it, 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 it stings, it, it jabs, it, it means you can't forget that it's there. Uh, and so, I guess that for different people, the thorn in the flesh might be all sorts of different things. It could be a, a weakness in our personality, an area of temptation, a, 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 some reputational issue from the past or um, a, a doubt or a struggle. It could be something physical or emotional or relational. Whatever that thorn in the flesh might be, Paul describes it in two terms. He says it's a messenger of Satan to harass him. Well, well that might be something we could quickly accept, wouldn't it? That Satan would try to destroy the work of someone like Paul and maybe even your work for the Lord, harassing you, keeping you back. But, but it's not only that. Paul says it was given to me, not by Satan, but by God, I think. And it was given to keep him from becoming conceited. In other words, the very same experience was an opportunity for Satan to try and destroy Paul's faith and Paul's ministry, but also could be used by the Lord to keep him humble, to refine his character. This is the, the marvel of Christian living and of Christian ministry, that the, the same weaknesses in Satan's hands could, could drag us down, but in God's hands become a great opportunity for Christ to be seen. And Paul, and I, again, I love his honesty in this. He says he pleaded with the Lord three times, not just he asked the Lord, but he pleaded, Lord, please take it away three times. Why three? I don't think this is setting a pattern for saying you can only ask God to do something three times and if he doesn't do it, then stop asking. Um, but the number three is certainly significant in some other places. The Apostle Peter particularly had a number of incidents of threes. He denied Jesus three times and three times on the Sea of Galilee on the shore at John 21. Jesus asked him, do you love me? Restoring Peter. And those aren't the only threes. Look at his vision uh, in Acts, for example. He saw, uh, heard the same thing three times. But, but three times Paul asked and the, and the Lord made it clear. The Lord said, presumably after the third time, so maybe he didn't hear an answer the first two times. But then the Lord gave him a definitive answer and said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul's not ashamed to boast about his weaknesses. He's content with them because when he's weak, he is strong. This is a beautiful Christian truth. The gospel is not come to Jesus and he will turn you into Superman or Wonder Woman. 
You know, he'll remove all of your weaknesses and make you invincible so that you can go and do amazing, wonderful, impressive things for God and live your best life and, and, and lay down an amazing reputation and change the world. Now, the gospel is that you are a weak person with a strong and mighty saviour who supplies his grace, who gives to you everything that you need in order to serve and glorify him. That's the gospel. It's the gospel of Christ and his strength and his perfection. And if I need and if you need a thorn in the flesh, whatever that might be, to keep me humble and dependent on Jesus, then that's a good thing. Might not be an easy thing. Might not be something I would seek. But Lord, keep me humble because I want it to be about Jesus and not about me. So if you have a weakness like that, do ask the Lord if he wants to take it away. But listen to the Lord's voice, because if he doesn't take it away, he will give you the grace to sustain you through it. And through that, he will teach you to trust and he can use you in your weakness for his glory. Let's finish our reading of Second Corinthians then, commencing again at chapter 12, verse 11. I've been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favoured than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not bound to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarrelling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practised. We'll pause there at the end of 2 Corinthians 12. I think this passage doesn't need a lot of explanation. Paul is talking about coming to them again and he's challenging them about what will he find? Will he find this division and competition, quarrelling and jealousy, all of this ungodly stuff. And what will what will his response be? Will, will the Lord humble him because he finds that he has to mourn because some of them have not turned away from their sexual sin? And Paul wants to remind them, look, look at the way I've been with you. I've never been a burden to you. And Titus and the others that I've sent to you were not a burden to you either. What I did amongst you were the signs of a true apostle, patience, signs and wonders and mighty works. In other words, God did signs and miracles through Paul that happened with the apostles, which is not to say they can't happen today. 
Although it is to say that they shouldn't always be expected to be with gospel ministry. They were expected of the apostles of Christ who he appointed. Um, but Paul says, look, you saw those things, but you saw them with patience. I love that. You didn't see them with boastfulness. You didn't see them with impatience. You saw them with Christ-like character, the meekness and gentleness of Jesus. Remember, I'm coming to you again like a father to his children. I would give my whole life for you. I would spend and be spent for your souls. Well, let's finish 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realise this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may do not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And that's the end of Second Corinthians. So again, Paul says he's going to come to them. Um, and he's going to investigate the things that uh, have not been resolved, the sins that have not been repented of. Those people must be held to account. It will be done properly with two or three witnesses, but Paul will deal with them because that is how Christ is. Christ is not weak in dealing with you, but powerful among you. He lives by the power of God. So this is an issue of discipline in the church. That's a whole idea that I think has sadly fallen by the wayside in the church today because our congregations today are so predicated on choice and on our choice to commit and if we don't like this church we can go to another one there isn't much of a sense of the power of God to to discipline us Christ holding us to account or leaders who like Paul although without his authority will hold the church to account Paul challenges them, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. There's a, a sincere challenge that I have to hold out to you, listener. Are you genuinely a believer? You know, there would be no point in me saying to you, deal with the sin in your life and be faithful to God if, if you were only trying to do that in your own effort, in your own strength. 
not by the resources that God gives, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 14, the love of God and the fellowship or partnership of the Holy Spirit. It's only if you are in the faith, if Christ is in you, that is by the Holy Spirit, that you can live this way, that you can be the way Paul's describing. If you don't have the Holy Spirit at work in you, if you are not in Christ, if you don't have his grace and the love of God, you will give in to quarrelling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit and disorder, all those things in the last chapter, verse 20. You will not conquer the sexual sin either. No, so test yourself. It's a good thing to ask. Am I genuinely believing in Jesus? The worst thing that can happen is that you discover that you're not. And so you turn to him and put your faith in him for the first time. But but of course, Paul's not expecting that they will fail that test. He, he's really praying that they will stand for what they have claimed to believe in. We can't do anything against the truth, but only for the truth, Paul says. In other words, what matters here is what is right and true and godly and pure. We want your restoration, he says, verse 9. That's what Paul's desire is. His authority has been given by the Lord not to tear them down. He's not coming to harm them or damage them. As he said earlier on in Second Corinthians, there is a godly grief that leads to repentance that's what he seeks from them not to tear them down not to be harsh with them not to cast them aside because of their sin but to see them come to God and receive his forgiveness and to receive his power to live and so he pleads with them in his final greetings verse 11 to 13 rejoice that's lovely isn't it find your joy in God Aim for restoration. Bring comfort to each other. Remember, these are some of the things Paul has talked about in this letter. Early on, he talked in chapter one, I believe, about the comfort that we have received from God that he gives us so that we can comfort others. Gospel comfort. Share gospel truth with each other. Reaffirm one another in the promises of God. Assure one another of the truth of God. Agree with one another. Live in peace. Find harmony. This is the community that God wants to see in the church in Corinth. Restored. Not falling apart. Not just living alongside one another. Leaving um, uh, 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 differences unresolved but graciously, lovingly drawing alongside each other. And it's the God of love and peace who will be with them, verse 11 says, to enable them to do this. They are to greet one another with a holy kiss, a culturally appropriate greeting, a kiss, but a holy one. And they are greeted by all the saints, by God's people in other places. They are not alone, not even, no, certainly not individually, they're together in community helping one another to be faithful to Christ, restoring each other. But they're part of the wider church too. And they are greeted by and prayed for, no doubt, by the churches in Macedonia and elsewhere. And so Paul leaves them with a benediction that has become so familiar, we often just call it the grace. Verse 14, the very last words of 2 Corinthians. If we're going to do what 2 Corinthians calls us to do, in our weakness, 
to live with the judgment seat of Christ in view, in these bodies which are like jars of clay, to live in humility and to point people to Jesus, to become like him, to be faithful to him, not to be boastful, not to live according to the flesh, but to walk by faith, not by sight. If we're going to do that, we will need to be in fellowship with, in partnership with the triune God. So may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, dear listeners, now and evermore. Amen.